I want us to turn our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I will be out of town this week uh, doing some education in Kentucky. I'll have a chance actually to celebrate a birthday with Aaron McCauley. It's uh, Kayla Lowe McCauley's husband. And so looking forward to seeing them uh, this week. And uh, just pray for me as I travel and return next Saturday. I'll be leading us in a thought. I will be speaking next Sunday. We're going to be doing communion next Sunday. So we'll be considering communion a little more intentionally as well. Not that we don't minimize communion when we have it, but the theme of the message next week will be related to communion. And so just to give you a heads up on, on what's happening, appreciate your prayers for me as I travel this afternoon. So, the scripture reading that uh, was read is, was not the text that I'm preaching from, and the text that I'm preaching from is a little bit awkward, uh, so just bear with me as we work through it together this morning. Um, have to understand that Paul is writing to a community that thought they were listening well to him, but they had totally misunderstood exactly what he was getting at regarding freedom in Christ. Uh, as you read this, you'll recognize just how far wrong they had gotten freedom in Christ. Uh, but let's just go ahead and read it. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. And again, I save this for after the kids being dismissed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meat for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that those who is that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immorality, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the Corinthians were paying attention when. Paul was in their town teaching them about what life in Christ is about. For example, the scripture reading that we, we did read this morning from Colossians focused on the importance of holding fast Christ as supreme. Because in Christ we are free. We're not under obligation to fulfill religious ritual customs. We don't need anyone to judge us on matters related to food or drink. Precepts like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch have the appearance of wisdom, Paul said, but actually in the end they promote a self-righteousness 
that is anti-gospel. Now, how free is free? And in this paragraph, Paul shows us actually how to think about the freedom that we have in the gospel and how that applies to how we carry our bodies in this world. See, the gospel calls us to a recognition of the overwhelming grace of God for us as a person, as people. It's the foundation. It is intended to create within us a sense of humility. God gave grace to the weak, to the lowly, to the despised. Intentionally so that our egos would deflate, that we'd recognize that we are not a self-authority, but we are underneath of the authority of Christ and underneath of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And it is intended that the gospel make us humble people. And out of a gospel humility, we are supposed to make much of God who redeemed us in all of life. And so the gospel lays claim upon our sexuality. And in this matter, God knows, though, that if you follow his plan, that purity, according to his design, will lead you into greater sense of fulfillment in this life. There will be a happiness and a joy that will be yours for following not your own authority, but following Christ and being obedient to him. And so in this paragraph, Paul is addressing three misunderstandings head on, the the freedom and what it means, sexuality, and also the body. And so Paul uses the gospel as a guide to wise living and the use of our bodies. And so the idea that I see manifesting itself, the kind of the general big idea here, is I've spent time trying to pull out Paul's thoughts, is that there's a gospel-rooted humility that, that will make much of God with our bodies, and that's how we want to arrange our lives and thoughts. We need to incorporate the humility that doesn't look to ourselves as our own guide, but we look to God as our guide. The problem is is that pride causes us to think that we have free reign over our bodies, and that is much better. That's what pride tells us. It tells us that if we go our own way, we will be much better for it. The trouble is, God knows better. He does know better. But if we would listen to him, submit our pride, incorporate humility, we'll find that his way is better. But so, Paul is addressing pride that's inherent in the hearts of the Corinthians. Because they're in a culture where going to the place where immorality occurs was accepted norm. In fact, it was a part of the ritualistic life of living in the city of Corinth. Now, I think that there could have been some confusion on the parts of some of the people in the church based upon their pagan background and the teaching that the Greek philosophers 
espoused. They had this viewpoint that, that the body was separate from the soul, or the spirit. And that because the spirit is eternal and immortal, it's more important the body, which is just matter. And so in the end, it's going to return to matter, so therefore it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want with that piece of matter. And so Paul's teaching on freedom from religious ritual was misunderstood because it was a part of the cultural ritual. And their expression occurred in contexts in which they recognized that the gods of these temples were nothing anyway. So, but they were living with their bodies in ways in which they shouldn't. And so it's important for us to see some of this as background. But we're not exempt in our day. Because if you really think about it, boy, isn't this sound very modern? There is nothing new under the sun. And the, the attempt to justify ourselves is so strong, to justify our own personal desires. And it seems as though in their church there were some people who were doing this. They were justifying that since sexuality is a biological function just like food to the satisfaction of biological need, then to satisfy one's desires was just to be human. It just, that's what you do. Now, Paul's going to address this false wisdom with the gospel. And so, it's important for us to realize that this tendency towards a self-justification is common to man. We can fall into this trap where we just say, well, it's a need that needs to be fulfilled. And if we're not careful, our minds can go where they ought not go. So, Paul addresses their argument, but yet they're full of pride and they express a need for free reign. But in verses 12 to 13, we see a chain of arguments. Now, depending on your translation, some translations do help us here a little bit because they put quotation marks around phrasings as if Paul is hearing phrases from the Corinthian church and now and then slips in a rebuttal. Okay, so in verse 12, he's rebutting this thought, all things are lawful for me. And he says it a second time, all things are lawful for me. And then in verse 13, there is another quote here, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And so he rebuts these thoughts. And so, he's, he's, he's very conscious of the self-perspective. Did you catch that in the double phrasing there? All things are lawful for me. It's a self-focus that he begins to address. Not all things are helpful. They may be enjoyable for you, but in the end, they're not helpful. And the word helpful literally means to bring together, to be profitable for the common good. And so, he's very subtle in what he's saying. Yes, all things may be lawful, but all things in the end are not helpful for you personally or for society in general. For the common good, this is not good. And you need to wrap your head around that as new creatures in Christ. And I think it's really important for us to see that Christian liberty, we are free. 
But that doesn't relieve the person from thinking about other people and thinking about the effect of one's actions upon those around them. Because in the end, you're not creating freedom, but you're creating slavery. And we need to consider others. There's no sense that we have to justify ourselves anymore. But we have to consider how our actions affect those around us. Now, he, he, he repeats this twice. There's something really interesting what he says here to the second, all things are lawful for me. The second thing he responds with is, I will not be dominated by anything. Now, it's a really interesting word that he uses because it's the same word that means authority in chapter 7 and verse 4. Flip over in your scriptures to chapter 7 and verse 4. Paul's talking about marriage. And this is instructive for those who are married as well to be aware. In verse 4 it says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So what Paul is saying is that when you submit yourself into this kind of, this, this very intimate relationship, you are giving yourself into the authority of another person. And so in your freedom, back to chapter 6, in your freedom... Do you not realize that you're putting yourself into the authority of somebody else? Are you really free in that case? No, you're not. You've just put yourself into the authority of somebody else. Why is it this way? Because the act of marriage is the act of marriage. It doesn't mean that just because a person has committed immorality that they're immediately married, but they're functioning in the act that is reserved for marriage in ownership. The act of marriage is designed by God to place you into the authority of another person. It binds a couple into one. There is something psychologically deep and rich that occurs as the moment occurs and it binds hearts, minds, and bodies into one. And so he's reasoning with them. You think that you're free, but really what you're doing is you're putting yourself into someone else's authority. Well, the continuation of this goes on, and he, he, he addresses the, the question about food. I mean, what's the difference between this and food? Well, he says, no, that purpose of the stomach is for your biological necessity, but to be human doesn't require that you fulfill these actions. In fact, your body is primarily for the Lord. And so, it's important for us to see his response there in verse 13, the second half. He says, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. Yes, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. There is not a question here about what goes into a man that defiles a man, but that which is in the heart. And he's saying here, 
that sexuality is something that is so unique, it is so powerful, so enjoyable, that God knows that it will be most beneficial for your life if you use it within the parameters that he has created. So in that sense, your body is intended for God's use and direction. It's not like a matter of nuance of food. In the area of food, there are at times nuance and gray areas that we all have to must consider on an individual level. You know, how you manage your diet and your habits. Uh, you know, Abby warned me if I talk about a diet that I'm on that I'll get off my diet. But my diet is not for everyone here in this room. You have to manage the body which you have been given with. But God knows that it is for our good and our problem is that we twist and we look for counterfeit joys in places that God has not ordained and then they're destined for futile disappointments. Now pride, again, it causes us to imagine that we have a free reign over our bodies, but this is just not so. When you give yourself to another in marriage, you are giving away your freedom and when you, are not, when you are free to express yourself in a context where you will not be hurt by somebody leaving, then you are truly free. If there are no marital covenant safeguards, then there are no safeguards to hold another person who has been given authority over you. It's a very vulnerable place to be. And I believe that at no other time is this a harder message to hear than it is today because marriage is so cheap. It is so considered just paper. But it is not paper. It is the will of God that this is the location where which this gift of God is to be pursued and enjoyed. But that's pride speaking. Paul's addressing pride. Now he moves into the area of how a, you know, how humility thinks through some of these things. Humility causes us to recognize God's reign over our body is much better. It is far better than our own imaginations. So in verse 13, in the latter part, he picks that last part up about being our body being for the Lord and, our, and the Lord for our body and expands on that through the rest of his, this paragraph and argument. God does give nuance in regard to food and drink, but with sexuality, God shows us that true freedom is found in this covenant relationship. But he does so, as he, as he talks about, as Paul talks about this, he shows us how it's, our bodies are tied inextricably. It's, we're, we're fastened to the gospel in such a way that perhaps will blow minds here this morning. First, argument and reason that God's reign over our body is better comes to us because our bodies are tied inseparably to the resurrection of Christ. So let's pick up in the last half of verse 13. It says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Did you catch that? 
This is the gospel tie-in. Paul points us to the fact that the power of the gospel to resurrect the body of Jesus Christ is the same power that will resurrect our bodies when by faith we place ourselves into Christ, we are no longer our own. Christ owns our bodies because when he comes to claim his own, he's coming for your body. He's going to resurrect your body in, in, in a way that blows your mind, recraft it, re-engineer it, so that it will not ever die. But the resurrection is a key component to the gospel. If you simplify the gospel just down to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that's fine. But you have the death, the burial, and you have the resurrection of the gospel expressed right there. And the resurrection makes claim upon our bodies. Our bodies are not our own. And so your body is tied inseparably to Christ because of the resurrection. Let's keep going, verse 15 to 17. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? (laughs) Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, this might surprise you, but when you profess faith, like genuine faith in Christ, your whole body is united with his. How does that happen? I don't know. But God said it, I believe it. Do you believe it? Do you believe it so that you will follow Christ's commands with your body? That's where the rubber meets the road. See, we, some, we so often divorce thinking and intellectual faith from our bodies. As a Jewish man writing from his Jewish background, the Jews did not separate body and soul and spirit. They thought of everything as one piece. And under divine inspiration, Paul is saying, your whole being is connected to Christ. And God knows us so intimately. When he makes himself known to us, he knows us in a way he's fully aware of everything that's happening inside of our bodies. It's not like he's out there. No, no, no. He's here. He's there. Where two or three are gathered together. Behold, I am there in their midst. We're so used to thinking about maybe each of us as members of the body of Christ, like in a church context. But Paul is drilling down here to the individual level and saying that that God knows us because he's intimately connected with each individual who places their faith and trust in him. In this case, if this is the case, Paul is saying, look, how can you take Christ's body, which is your body, but it's actually Christ's body, and put it under submission in a context 
with someone else that's not a believer and in a context in which there's immorality occurring? How can you take Christ's body, which this is not... How can I take my body and put it in a place where I'm sinning with it? I'm not just sinning against myself, but I'm also sinning against God. And of course, we don't have to move our bodies. We can move our minds into places where they should not be. And it's the same thing. Christ taught us that in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. What's really interesting here is that in verse 16, Paul quotes Genesis 24 to explain what's happening when you take your body, Christ's body, into a place that it should not be. He says there is a cleaving, a joining together, literally a cleaving. That word join in my translation is the, is the Greek word that, that later, later our translators of the Hebrew scriptures, they translated into the Greek language. It's the same word that's used to translate Genesis 2.24. Join is cleave. You're becoming one. It's mystical, but it happens. Now, Paul says, okay, so this is the occurrence. You're taking the body there, but your body has already been cleaved. It's already been joined to Christ Jesus himself. How does he get that? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20, I think it should be on the screen. Maybe it's not. No, they're shaking their head. Deuteronomy 10 verse 20, you can turn there or just jot a note to look at it later. I'm going to quote it right now. Paul is referencing in verse 17 that the joining together of your body with Christ is what occurs. And he says, quoting from Deuteronomy 10 20, which says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you will swear. That word hold fast is the same word of being joined, of being cleft, becoming one. That's what, occur, that's, that's what real faith is. It affects your body. And so Paul's reasoning is very clear. If your whole being is Christ, then why would you become one with another through immorality? And he keeps going. His argument is relentless. And I have to keep preaching on this topic here because it's here in front of me. Verse 18 says, Your body, he argues that your body is tied inseparably to your own soul. You're, you're, you're damaging who you are is what he's saying. In verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, that person sins against his own body. It affects who you are. And he says, flee from it. It, it, it just on grounds of common sense, run Leave it, because you're hurting yourself. And the word uh, flee here is actually very picturesque for us, because it's the exact word choice used in the account of Joseph running from Potiphar's house. When he was tempted to sin with his body, he said, I can't do this against God, I'm out of here. He fled. 
And so we have to run like Joseph. We have to run when temptation filters its way towards us. We have to block it out. We have to run from it. Don't dabble with it. Why run? Because passion is not rational or sensible. It is so dangerous, you become trapped in it. And you get put in underneath of its mastery. When the desires of the heart start moving, it's like 25,000 horses run in a direction. And Paul says, flee it. Don't dabble in it. It will destroy you. God loves us. He's not telling us because he hates us. He's telling us this because he loves us and he wants us to find greater joy and fulfillment and peace in him. And lastly, the argument here moves on in verses 19 to 20 that our body is tied inseparably to the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 and 20. Verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So therefore, glorify God in your body. That's what it's all about, folks. It's about not your selfish wishes, but the glory that is due to God alone. And there is joy in that. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're bought with a precious price, the blood of Jesus Christ. You know what? You have to keep meditating on that. If temptation continually calls your name, you're out of habit in dwelling on the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Temptations will come, but you have to do this meditative work to give recognition to the fact that your body is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. It has to be a continual awareness and focus. It's all fine and dandy here on Sunday morning. You have a pastor who's all fired up about it. But tomorrow, on Monday morning, you have to repeat the gospel to yourself that you have been bought with a price. So I'm going to glorify God in my body today. See, that takes humility to do that. You get up in the morning, I can run this day like I want to run this day. And all of a sudden, you're stepping right into pride. The humility of the cross calls us to submit our, our, our bodies to him. And a gospel-rooted humility makes much of God in our bodies. And it's so important here to see that Paul is not splitting spirit and body apart. Now, some translations have a little extra piece there. I can't get into the reasons why. However, it's a bit of an interruption in Paul's thought processes because he's talking about our whole body. He's talking about the whole body and where we actually find the good life. You know, Jesus taught that the heart or the gut, the inner desires of our body point towards objects that they believe will give them the good life. Our ultimate love is oriented to 
what we think will bring us an enjoyable life. And you think about it. All the plans that we make for the, for the, the home that we want, that's going to make us happy. If we could just get into this new house, it will be the good life for us. If I could just get this one position, this one job that I've really wanted, then I will be, it'll be like utopia for me. So much of the commercialism in the world that we live in paints stories and pictures to tease our imaginations to get us to think that if we go in this direction, we will enjoy life and it, it will be great. What is it doing? It's appealing to our inner desires, telling us stories. But God tells us an alternate story about living life not for ourselves but for Him. That that truly is where joy is found. There are so many competing voices in this world that create myth. And yet we run along and join in on the party because we're not thinking as Christians. But you know what? The Apostle John said in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 16, he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world and the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life... It's not from the Father, but it is from the world. You see that the the pride of life, that's the, the good life. That's what I want. In our overly sexualized world, there is a pernicious promise that the knife light, the knife life, is where the good life is. But it is the promise of a different kingdom. It is not the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of this world. It is a life offered in the hand of the devil. And it inflames our pride. On the other hand, God who made you, who knows you, and gave himself for you, is offering you not mud pies, but offering you a whole seashore to enjoy. And the gospel teaches us that we ought to make much of God through a body, believing by faith that we will find the satisfaction and joy that he promises. This is what it means to live by faith. To live not in competition with what God has said, but to live in practice with what God has said. You see, the gospel teaches us to present our bodies to Christ because that's where true freedom is. There are so many stories of people who have gone and cut themselves up through all kinds of immoral lifestyle, but there are so many people who have cut themselves up with the materialism of this world There's so many people who have cut themselves up thinking that if I could just have this one thing, I would be happy. It's a lie. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. 
The only happiness that you will have is found in Christ alone. Run from the images that are projected on the screen. It's not where true freedom is. It's found in Christ and Him alone. But that takes humility. That makes a surrendering of our own pride. That means believing the gospel. And a gospel-rooted humility is one that makes much of God through our bodies, essentially our whole lives.